0: Welcome to The VanderPoint. Please join your hosts, Jessica Vanderkoy and Rachel Pointer, as they challenge each other and have critical conversations about disrupting and dismantling the systems that fuel human trafficking.
1: Well, I was <clears throat> reflecting on a lot of things this last week since our, our break from recording ended on the 13th episode to we've gotten some feedback from from listeners so it was like I was reflecting on that one of the primary things I think we hear a lot is that people want episodes to be longer um, and working on that and then really excited about our content for the next several weeks Um, that's been filling my thoughts as I prepared for today but When we talked about our topic today of intention versus impact, I was, I was initially trying to think of like this super simple example that happened to me that like could just sort of show like, you know, this is what this is, right? I had a really hard time coming up of it in that context, although it's been something that I've been really focused on and mindful of over the last couple of years, because I think I am like many people, and this being built in um, uh, white supremacist structures and white savior personalities—I don't even—what do you call it—is um, <laughs> the idea that intention is enough. Mm. And so, um, and so, I I I pulled on a thread, and I'm going to tell you how I pulled on the thread. And at some point, it's probably going to feel like oh, wow, she's being really vulnerable because um, it's totally exposing some things, I think for me and my process, but I think it's important for people to hear and know I'm not in a place where this is raw and difficult and I'm going to need something afterwards. Does that make sense? Yes. So the way that I kind of see this is intention versus impact and the way it comes out in like helping profession and my work in trafficking and probably one in my work in child welfare, was I always talked about this idea or this line of holding hope, right? So like this space where it's like, I believe in you on one side of the coin, and I'm going to hold it there while you kind of pull all these pieces together, because I see this, this, a different life being built for you and healing and all these other things. And then the other side of the coin, wanting it more than somebody wants it for themselves. So you're in this like tiny little line in between and like this holding hope. And I think sometimes our intention there and being like, I want you to know that I'm hopeful, right? That I see this, this space for you where this doesn't hurt so bad, where you do feel that you can, um, you know, make your own way and provide for your own basic needs and this level of autonomy that you haven't had, right? Like I see it and we want, want people working in these positions to see it as they walk alongside, Right but i do think we can get very very lost if we need to feel good in the process so this is where intention versus impact i think like really makes sense to me and where i needed to own my own stuff was i hold hope for you i see a future right i see something when i'm walking alongside you cuz i see your you know amazing personality and how funny you are and how resilient you've been and how smart you are and how you're able to put these just these ideas together and you've got this talent for, you know, budgeting or costume design or, you know, playing the cello or whatever it is that I, that I get to learn about the people we work with. And if I'm honest, so I'm pushing it, I'm holding the hope that when I push, my intention is for you to see the hope that I see in you, but I have to ask myself in that process, is it because I need to be affirmed that you see me holding hope? Because what can happen in that impact is I'm holding this hope for you. My intentions are for me to push you kind of in the right direction. But what my impact ends up being is you not feeling like it's your own story or you being in charge. Even though the words that come out of my mouth are I'm walking alongside you. Mm -hmm. Right. You know, all of that is a whole bunch of stuff um, that I think I've worked a lot through and continue to work through because part of that is actually this is talking about it, I guess in this way. Yeah. But when I talk about how I can get lost, um, where my intention is something, and then I get lost and my impact really is that you feel like we aren't walking alongside each other anymore. Um, I always, just like you said earlier, I always go back to, is there something I'm needing out of this? Is this rooted in a different motivation? that I need you to see me as someone who holds this hope because that's important to my own narrative. Mm. Well now we're talking about white savior shit again. I was just going to
0: say that's right? that's th- I feel like that is a thread that pulls back into white saviorism like it's and it doesn't feel like we're riding in on a white horse to save the day when it's framed in in this way which I think is is how we get to the space where white saviorism is so dangerous. Like there's so much of it that's so hidden. And and in your your, I say your as if you're the only person who does this. In our <laughs> in our wanting to offer hope to people and seeing that hope in these space like we're pushing our own. It's almost like we can't enter these spaces and help other people without making it about us, because that ends up what, what you're just talking about is it becomes about my
1: hope for you. Right. Because what makes me awesome is that I have this hope for you, that I'm able to hold this hope for you. Right? Yeah, And I'm not saying that that is not something that we need as practitioners or people doing this really difficult work. Yeah. We just have to learn to get it someplace else. We learn yes. to get it community of practice meetings. We learn to get it from our peers. We learn, you know, we have these meetings and Rachel says, I am so impressed with the way you will hold hope for this client when this has been so hard. And I can tell you see so many strengths in her. Thank you so much for noticing that. Right. Mm-hmm. So it's not that practitioners don't need that regardless of, of race, how long you've been in the field, um, what success you have not have and had not had, um, we just have to be very careful, you know, that white saviorism piece is so rooted in that relationship with the person who we're quote unquote helping. Mm-hmm. And if I need anything from you to be affirmed in this, I have to start to question, what is my intention? And, yeah. and is it yeah. impacting my impact?
0: Right? right.
1: <laughs> yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. And especially when
0: we think about how coercion really works, you know, we've, in in previous episodes, we talked about and, and highlighted different things that were coercive, like uh, healthcare being tied to a job, right? Those kinds of things. And when I, as someone who has experienced exploitation specifically, those of us who have experienced exploitation are super tuned in to what other people expect from us and want from us. And if I am sensing from you that you need my validation always. I'm going to give that to you so that I can get what I want and walk away. It mm-hmm. automatically becomes a transactional relationship instead of an affirming relationship, a relationship that builds healthy healthy boundaries, healthy patterns, breaks mm-hmm. old patterns, etc. It's automatically transactional and it and it, it shifts all the work that you're trying to do that you're hoping and intending to do and just kind of washes it under a bridge somewhere. Mm-hmm. Because we can't, we can't enter into a relationship with somebody who's experienced exploitation and hope that they're really going to get what they need and find real healthy relationships if it's transactional.
1: Mm-hmm. If
0: I need validation from you,
1: it's transaction mhm yeah well and and survivors are great at transactional relationships anyone who's been who has experienced um often trauma in relationships are great at transactional relationships absolutely so I'm glad you brought that up as being an important component in working with survivors because you know the program that um, I built over the last several years was so relationship rooted and I think it was really hard for people to understand why we we were so intentional to not make things transactional, right? Like, you call me three times this week, I will give you a gift card for food, right? If you don't cancel on me two times, then we can, you know, go to lunch. I don't. I don't know. I didn't make these things up. This isn't. This wasn't my program. If, <laughs> if you really start healing in therapy, we will help pay your phone bill. Right. So programs yeah. are set up like that and our program was not set up like that at all, very intentionally. But I'll tell you, it is it was a hard sell the entire time we operated. Most yeah. people didn't get it. So I'm glad you brought up because the, the healing that we're talking about in relationships and um, the repair that can happen. So healing in relationships doesn't mean everything goes perfect. Right. right. It means that when I screw things up, you and I talk about it and we repair it. And then next time it doesn't feel so, so hard and scary to screw up. Yeah. Right. Yeah. Um, yeah. and, and I learned that, oh my gosh, like if I don't do what people want me to do all the time or I make a mistake, they still like me. They still want to meet with me. I'm still worthy of all the love and respect that I see other people being worthy of. Right. So, so yeah, I'm glad you brought that up. I like partially I like reminiscing about how amazing the program was, Um, if I'm totally honest, um, (laughs) but yeah, that transactional piece and, and how we move away from that, our intention is, so put this in the context of intention versus impact, right? Like my intention is to help you get your rent paid. So I give you an opportunity to do A, B, and C, and then I will do A, right? Mm -hmm. Um, the impact is I continue to teach you that in relationships, you are a commodity Yep. Um, you yep. are only as good as what you provide. Um, what else you are, your needs don't actually really matter. What you do for me does. Yep. Right? And that it's so about you. Project. Right. Yeah. Services for me are about you
0: every time. Mm-hmm. Cause I have to do this for you in order for you to help me. That means the services are about you, not me. Yeah. Cause you got the
1: helper, got to decide what I had to do, what hoops I had to jump through, right? And what yeah. success is. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So there we are, intention versus impact, there right? It, there it is. Yeah. Yeah. Exploring that. You know, I can't, I would say, I can't put a percentage on it, but I would <laughs> say a large portion of the population stop at intention. If their intention was good, they complete hold themselves unaccountable for the impact. Yeah. and you know, I, I run in small circles of people who are, you know, really generous and progressive and for the most part, really well. And I think even all, some of the people that I interact with, including myself, have been in practice of stopping, you know, intention. So I'm really glad we're having this conversation and, and exposing some of the work that we've done in the last, you know, in the last couple of years around it. It's important. Yeah.
0: How do we measure what our impact is, especially when we're talking about this? Like, how do we measure what is our impact? It's not, you know, I can say, I can measure like how many survivors we've given rent to, how many lunches we've paid for. I can, I can measure like how many appointments we've actually had, you know, like I can measure those things, but the impact, what the services actually do for people mm-hmm. and and how that translates into the health and well-being of our communities that's I don't think it's actually hard for us to measure we just have not given ourselves an opportunity to be creative we've boxed ourselves in um that's that's I, what I think it's nice <laughs>
1: I think I think- we absolutely I, this is this cannot, is your criticism of me you're too nice <laughs> we absolutely cannot measure impact without involving the person who's impacted right. and i think we what ends up happening is, is we decide what is impactful and then we again measure what we think well you had food that's impactful right and this well, because is because <laughs> right? it's about right it's my birth, so what's my impact to, right well my but again, intention. it's about yeah. Tell, yeah. Me, tell me, my impact was everybody got lunch. Okay. Well, nobody was hungry at lunchtime. Right. So, you know, and you had to, because you never actually asked anybody, you know, everybody got it up at 3am and lunch was at 10 and you didn't serve quote unquote lunch till one, everyone had eaten like, you know, I mean, whatever it is, it's it, so um, I think as a system to perpetuate the, you know, power and control to perpetuate the helper and the healthy to, to perpetuate the professional and the client is we don't actually really want to know what's impactful. Yeah. Otherwise yeah. we would ask people and then we would change our programs to match that. Oh snap. So the whole thing is just lousy intention. Yeah. <laughs> it will. yeah, that's true. That's, that's
0: the piece. That's the intention beneath the intention. The stated intention is that we are serving everyone lunch. What's underneath that? Why are we serving everyone lunch? That's the intention beneath the intention. And we are not, we are not examining that. Mm -hmm. And and I think that's by
1: design. Yeah, because the impact would be, ideally, the people you're serving lunch to say, I'm not hungry during the day. Right. 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 But if what you're serving, nobody likes, right? With what you're serving isn't large enough quantities, isn't enough caloric intake, is at the wrong time, because you never bothered to get the information of how to have impact. Right. That's nice. The intention Is that you want everyone to have lunch, right? But, and in order to have impact, we have to actually talk to the people we're serving. We have to ask them, is this what you need? Mm-hmm. Is this what's going to work? Is this what you see success as? Is this what, you know, just like you were talking about earlier, right? Yeah. Like if we're not going to define it, we have to ask. And that's really the only way to have impact, which makes absolute sense that we don't have it right now because we have to keep the one down, right? We have to keep power and control. We have to keep the haves and the have nots, the helper and the help-ee. Exactly. And if I actually have him impact, you don't need me and you're not one down anymore.
0: Yeah, exactly. Yeah. So it, this this, conversation kind of reminds me of uh something um someone was talking about in a meeting I was in um very very similar conversation like intention versus impact and and the analogy they used was so you say you want to give everyone a candy bar because you want to give folks you know a little a little joy right a candy bar so you decide you're going to give everyone uh snickers and You're handing out the Snickers and you're wondering why half of the room doesn't touch them, but you're like, Hey, I gave out a hundred Snickers. So, Hey, I'm successful, right? writing my attention and later discover that half the room wasn't taking them because they're allergic to peanuts. So you intended to give everyone a little bit of joy, but what you ended up doing was giving half the room, something that would kill them. And, and I think that sometimes when we don't actually examine what we're really trying to do and involve the people we're trying to serve in the conversation, in building the goals and building the programs themselves, and, and even, dare I say, implementing programming, is we end up giving folks something that will kill them and not make them healthier. It won't deliver them a little bit of joy. It won't make them feel better or tide them over until dinner.
1: Mm-hmm.
0: You know, it's like thinking that you're doing something awesome because you're passing around the circus peanuts. Well, that's not helpful right. if people are allergic to peanuts.
1: Yeah. I love that example. That's exactly it. And what component in, in these structures that we're talking about that keep Certain people in charge keep us focused on you know the solution to to this crime is more funding for services after the exploitation. right? Because um, right? we aren't asking men or boys what they need to understand relationships different, right, and having impact there. We aren't asking or implementing what women are saying they need. Right. To feel equitable in our society so that it isn't just a narrative that's so easy to 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 believe that, you know, a guy made a bad decision. Boys will be boys. There was alcohol know those narratives are so freaking easy because we don't always see women as equitable. I mean, look what's going on in Texas. Right. That's. Yeah. That's a whole other episode. I was thinking about it actually for this and helping people make the connection on how you can own another human being in a trafficking situation. In fact, trafficking absolutely relies on the idea that I can purchase another human being to get them to do what I want mm-hmm. and the parallels between Um, getting to make decisions about your body right so it is actually important and in fact anytime I do any presentations and people ask me what can I do to to be in to to do anti-trafficking work and I said you can write for equity you can argue advocate for equitable rights for for all people including women like equal pay like pro-choice like you know um, all of that is anti-trafficking work damn it I digress again (laughs) how did that happen I was doing so good I was doing so good I don't think it's necessarily
0: digressing. I think it's highlighting more of okay. those threads that need to be pulled through. These are the things that we don't talk about in connection to trafficking specifically, but just like a violence towards people, period. Like we mm-hmm. don't we don't pull those threads because they seem unrelated, but the truth is they are so damn related. They're they're so related we are trying to unrelate them. We're trying to disconnect them so that you don't notice anymore how related they are, how each one has to do with grooming, preparing people to be exploited or to be um abused, to be kept under control of someone else. There it's all related. Thinking about like how one of the things that I say to folks when um you know, when I give presentations and stuff is if we want to really make a difference and work on changing and ending trafficking and exploitation, one of the things that all of us can do is change how we interact with the children around us, right? It's about raising up the next generation differently than the way we were raised. For me, it's it's like, how do I tell you if your philosophy is that is based on the idea that um you own your children then it makes no sense to you when i say probably spanking them sends the wrong message Uh but if you think about if you think about the child as a a human being and the idea that the relationship is the intervention and what you do in relationships teaches red flags green flags, et cetera, then that starts to make a little bit more sense.
1: We can get into, I absolutely agree with you. Anti-trafficking work sits in our roles as parents and how we raise young people to know how to be in relationships. Mm-hmm. I think mm-hmm. parents, because they often see their children as their sort of property and, and I sort of just something that's passed down, right? This is my child. I'm going to get to decide what my child does. And yep. And, and there are some, there are some truths to that, right? You are in charge of a lot of things of a house and income and a person, a little person that's living in, in the space. And, you know, so, um, but it's, the you know, it's, it's less about what we do and how we do it. Right. So I think that's kind of what you're talking about, which is how we engage people in that relationship is, is so important, right? One of the things we've talked a lot about here and my, um, my children's father doesn't see it the same and. And I associate it with uh, domestic violence and, and um, trafficking is when we force young people to, to hug relatives when they're not comfortable. Yep. Um, when we force kids to give affection, affection to other people because we're the adults saying, hey, the most socially appropriate thing to do when you greet grandma on Easter is to give grandma a hug. And that might be what's socially appropriate in the way that you were raised, but it teaches so many things that, to that young person about their body. And I can pull the thread all the way through, right? So if you love me, you will hug me. If you love grandma, you will hug her. Go hug grandma. You don't want grandma to feel sad that you didn't hug her. You fast forward that to someone who's 14, 15, or 16. If you love me, you'll have sex with me. If you love me, you will smile when I look at you. If you love me, you will do what I want you to do. And And it's not a far reach. It's a a tiny little tug on that thread, and I think what you're talking about is, you know, obviously people get to parent in whatever way they want to parent. Mm -hmm. However, until we get really honest about things that we do and teach our children very young um, about their body, about consent, about getting consent, but also giving consent, about all of those things, we are not going to work ourselves out of a culture where women can't be bought and sold, where we have people who, who can talk someone, um, groom someone into these arrangements, um, because it's pretty normalized in our community. It's pretty normalized in our society Mm -hmm. and it's shit. (laughs) It's complete (laughs) shit. Yes, indeed. And I think. What we're trying to do is just expose, have some conversation for critical thought because I have you know, I have parented now for twenty two years and I'm a completely different parent in how I approach things now than I absolutely so this is not a pointing fingers, this is not a good parent versus not so good parent. This is a critical conversation around What role do we have as parents in raising young people and creating safe and inclusive spaces for everyone and to reduce um, the crime of trafficking? Because trafficking requires that some people are not safe requires that some people are not equitable and requires that the system responds to some people differently. That trafficking relies on that. It is about parents owning their responsibility to help change that. And and so I think that's, you know, neither one of us want to turn today into a parenting podcast. However, it absolutely relates. Yes,
0: definitely. The intention was not to turn it into a parenting podcast. I have to prepare for that. Right. Yes, there is so much there. Yeah. It's our job. <laughs> Ooh, yeah. Well I, I like I would just add to that, like, if we're not parents, if you find yourself in a situation where you're not a parent, it hasn't changed much, actually. Like we still still have that same responsibility as leaders, as managers, as mentors, as teachers, as therapists as advocates, as aunties and uncles and whatever else, you know, whatever relationships you find yourself in. You have to be a parent
1: in order for this to matter. Yeah. Oh, absolutely. Parenting, relationships are powerful regardless if you're in the role of parent or not. Mm-hmm. Um, relationships are where it's at. Mm-hmm. That's it and the bad stuff. There's joy and right. sorrow in them and most people experience, if they experience trauma, it's in relationships. But and we need to heal. So yeah. Thank you for witnessing today's
0: conversation on the Vanderpoint. Jessica and Rachel hope you will join them next time as they continue engaging in this critical work.